Dr. G, let me ask you a question. Shoot. Are your kids the center of your life? Absolutely. Is their happiness more important than your own? Definitely. Very good. We are going to be talking about child centrism on this week's show, along with long-term happiness in relationships and what kids know about conquering fear. Plus, you get to hear Dr. Brian interrogate me more this week on Family Anatomy. psychologists but they're not your psychologist so if you need to talk to someone about family or mental health issues you can get a referral from your family doctor this show is for information only welcome to family anatomy your source for parenting and relationship information with your hosts dr giuseppe spazzano and dr brian mcdonald you can find us over at familyanatomy.com or on itunes and let's get right into our discussion today we're talking about three news stories that we really liked we are. We're going to be starting with the scary monster story. Scary monsters. Yes, it's which soon is after Halloween. It's right? perfect. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little late, but almost. Well, listen, I didn't know how my kids were going to respond to their fear of Halloween until after Halloween happened. So now I've had time to process it and calm them down, and they're not having nightmares anymore about our decorations that we put up at home. <laughs> scary decorations? <laughs> Your place haunted house? No, no, we didn't. No, we didn't. But we do have. My kids are a little bit older. Well, one of my, my sons is older than yours, and he decided not to go out at all this year. He was going to help his grandmother with handing out treats. And the younger guy went out, but he tends to be the guy who gets nervous about new things and scary things. I saw his picture, and I was nervous looking at him. He's like, he was a pretty authentic-looking zombie. He, wasn't he a zombie? He was a zombie. He was very scary. So, yeah, I did his makeup, and I, I wasn't sure if I should allow him to look at himself in the mirror, but... In the end, I said, okay, let's give this a shot. And he was fine, actually. You know, he didn't have bad dreams after. I'm just kidding around. Well, that's good, because I did. Ah, uh, mm. about my son's yes. makeup. Yes, <laughs> White face, black, uh, drippy stuff on there. Oh, he was yeah. drippy. Yeah, he was very <laughs> drippy. It took a long time to get all that stuff off. Yeah, so our first story, scaring the monster away. What children know about managing fears of real or imaginary creatures? You know, we've talked about managing stress and managing anxiety and things like that, but I don't, I don't know, have we ever really talked about fear of monsters and, and what kids do when they're afraid of some something that might be imaginary? I don't think directly like that, especially about monsters. Mm -hmm. I don't think we have. Well, and, and this is a study that looked at kids between the ages of four and seven and how the ideas that they come up with to deal with the scary situation change, well, with age, uh, how they might be different according to whether you're talking to a boy or a girl, and how they might be different according to whether the fear might be a real thing or might be something imaginary. That's right. And also just generally their their fear reactions, I guess their fear reactions and their fear management strategies. Yeah. Because they're, they're two sort of categories of things. Plus, like you say, gender and age and how that affects it. We know, I mean, we, we know from previous research mm -hmm. that kids, um, you know, as they come up through, you know, one, two, three, four, five years of age, they go from trying, you know, understanding the difference between fantasy and reality. And by the time they get to five, they pretty much know, 
although I don't think all five-year-olds do. Right. But uh, there's got a bit of a, uh, a lead in there from one to five, and uh, that's a developmental thing that happens with kids. We know that. Mm-hmm. From the research that they looked into, we also know that there's research that shows that females express emotion more intensely and more frequently than males. Wow, that's hard to believe. <laughs> Never they heard of that before. needed to do a study on that. <laughs> and that uh, one of the things about uh, males as opposed to females is that males tend to be more physical in the kinds of things they do in response to anxiety. Uh, and females tend to be more maybe talking about their feelings and ruminating more about it. Well, one of the things that I liked is that they they talked about some previous research saying that um, young kids, if you talk to them about dealing with fear, the ideas that they tend to come up with are about changing the situation itself. Like you have to get out of there, you have to do something. Right, so they talked about these two different kinds of strategies. One is the just the sort of fight or flight response, right? And then the other one is more mental strategies. And they wanted to look at the, you know how kids do this over time because they looked at kids between four and seven, mm-hmm. and they were trying to track how that changes over time. Well, and they especially wanted to know about those imaginary things, like what would you do if if you thought you saw a ghost or if you thought Monsters. you saw a monster, yeah, or something like that. And there are two different ways that kids could react in those situations. They could uh, come up with some positive imaginary kinds of strategies, right, to change things around. If you saw a monster, like you might imagine that in in that scenario that you that you had a sword and a shield or or that it might be a friendly monster or something like that on the other hand they could use more reality based kinds of strategies and tell themselves well I would say to myself that ghosts aren't real or that monsters aren't real so I I would be less scared that's right there's those two strategies right you're either checking this thing out against reality mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. or you're you're dealing with it as though that imaginary thing is real and you're going to do something to combat it. Right. So these are the kinds of things they were looking at and they found. Well, one of the things I want to say before we get into their findings is that they use stories, right? They had the kids look at stories where uh, they were the focal point of, they were the main character of the story. They picked a picture that looked like the child who was, who they were reading the story with. And then they had little thought balloons over their head. And I, I know this is is not germane to the research at all, but I really like the idea that there has been research to show that kids even younger than four years old understand what a drawing of a thought bubble means. That's right. because And and the reason I think they had that in there is because spontaneously, Mm -hmm. the younger kids don't go to those sort of mental strategies. But if you kind of prompt them with that thought balloon they're more likely to to do that, or at least they wanted to look at the research in, in the, that they're doing to see if that prompting helps bring about those mental strategies that researchers in the past have thought the, the younger kids didn't have. That's right. So they got the kids together, four-year-olds and five-year-olds and seven-year-olds, and had them read eight different stories that were changed a little bit along the way. So they had a few different things that they changed here and there, comparing the younger kids to the older kids. And, of course, what they found is that older kids were better at coming up with mental strategies to deal with those fears. Right, but they also found that the young kids could be prompted into those mental strategies and that as they got older, they used those more and more. I think they also were saying that 
all kids, like all the kids they looked at, at Mm -hmm. least from four to seven, use the behavioral fight or flight type of responses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's stable. That's right. But the mental responses grew with time. The other thing that they found is that uh, even even these young kids, you know, they they were able to look at these pictures and like they were asked, how do the different people in the pictures respond? Right. And they tended to say that kids were more afraid in the pictures than the adults. Mm -hmm. And amongst the adults that the dads were less afraid than the moms. So they also I've got a real theory of mind going they, on there, and they got that a, some going on. stereotypical knowledge about uh, that's it. how now people deal with fear. There's a stereotypical knowledge, and on the other hand, I guess if we're looking at that earlier research, if women are more transparent mm-hmm. in in the anxiety that they show, yeah. that they talk about it more as well. It's not that it's not in the men. I think it's equally in the men. Mm-hmm. They're just not as transparent about it, and they're not talking about it. So it's not as evident, and it's not as evident even to young kids. Exactly right. Exactly right. And the well, the other thing they noticed was that as the kids got older, they tended to use more of those reality-based kinds of mental strategies. I would tell myself a ghost isn't real. I would tell myself there's no such thing as monsters, uh, as opposed to the, the more positive pretending ones, which the younger kids use more. That's right. And they said uh, maybe with the younger kids, it might be helpful to stick with those positive pretending strategies like... Well, when that monster comes up, uh, you know, take out your sword or, you know, mm-hmm. or, or when that monster comes, hey, guess what? He's kind of a nice monster. Right. Well, you know, I, you know what? I remember, a, uh, uh, I remember a parent who used to have monster spray in, okay. in the kid's room. And it was like a, like a plant sprayer that would make a little mist. And so if the kid was afraid of monsters, they, they had this bottle that was labeled monster spray. And the parent would come in and spray around the room to keep the monsters away. And then the kid could go to sleep. Perfect. Yeah, what a and, good idea. And I remember both of us, I think, used this. I think you gave me the idea to say to our kids, uh, no bad dreams allowed. No bad remember dreams allowed. <laughs> I remember it so well. My younger son said... <laughs> It worked really, really well for for my older boy. He would say it, and then he would go to sleep, and it would be fine. But my younger guy, who's more nervous at night, I would, you know, he he would be scared, and I'd go into his room, and I'd be saying, "Well, what if you tried this, and what if you tried that, and nothing would work?" And I said, "Well, you know, your your brother always says no bad dreams allowed, and if when he says it in a in a real tough voice, that that helps him to go to sleep." And he crossed his arms and turned his back on me and said, "No, I will not say that." Right. <laughs> so it didn't work very well for him. The older guy, it worked very well. <laughs> well, there you go. He didn't yeah. want to hear any strategies, I'm afraid. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the other interesting thing about this is I just, uh, I was just looking over some material by Dr. Neufeld, mm-hmm. and he was talking about how, you know, you're, it's that you have fear inside you as a child, yeah. and that comes out in different ways. One of these ways is monsters. So, so really, the, and this is something that research doesn't touch on, but it's really about addressing that underlying need for security mm-hmm. that the child has. That that's the thing that takes the monster it's away, not necessarily the strategies, right? Right. Yeah. But it's this underlying uh, sense of security and attachment. Yeah, and and of course, you know, one of the things that I'm sure Dr. Newfeld would say in response to this research is that that they didn't look at was the idea of well, what about being comfortable with being a little bit afraid. What about, is it okay to feel those emotions? Which like, of course it is, right? Everybody gets scared it. sometimes. I, I, that's right. He, I think I think the way uh, he talks about it is that you can, you can 
model or you can show the child that you can have courage in the face of things that you can't change and mm-hmm. these, these um, fears that, you know, that they're inevitably part of life. That's right. And, and of course, young kids believe that courage is about not being afraid when the fact is you can't be courageous unless you feel afraid. Exactly. So that comfort level with feelings is really important. And our second story is called, uh, well, it's from the Social Psychology and Personality Science Journal. It's called Filling the Void, Bolstering Attachment, Security, and Committed Relationships. Which is something that family therapists, couples therapists are very concerned about, right? Committed relationships, long-term attachment security. That's right. It's an October 2013 study, so it's very current. Very current. We like the current ones. We love the current ones. off the press. Totally. uh, Hot off the... uh, the, the screen of the, <laughs> of the digital journal. That's right. So 137 romantically committed couples in this uh, longitudinal study. So they, they actually measured four factors over the course of two years, three different times. So that's that longitudinal part. That's right. Attachment anxiety, which is being very concerned about how your relationships are working out. Yeah. You're, well, the, the anxiety is... Uh, you're always worried about whether the person's close enough to you. Yeah. Like, do you it's care a, enough me? Do you yeah. enough about me? Do you love me? Do you? It's a real preoccupation with how that relationship is is proceeding. And you, what have you done for me lately to show that you care about me? That's right. You're engaged, but you're engaged in an anxious way. Right. You know, please love me. Looking I'm not for sure reassurance. If you do. Or you need, always reassurance. Yeah, you need right? reassurance. And then there's attachment avoidance. And that's a little bit more detached and disengaged, and it's more like well, someone that's what that, it's out. Yeah, that's what it's all about is that, being disengaged, right? And you're that's it. And so you're you're sort of uh, not trusting intimate relationships because of earlier experiences in your life, mm-hmm. um, and you tend to have this kind of style in relationships where you're kind of checking out. You're checking out. You're checking out, and um, a lot of times these. These people end up together in relationships. Wow. It's very, very common. Just one person chasing the other and the other running as fast as they can to get away from that intimacy that they're avoiding. And the more they run, the more the person chases. And it's a terrible... A pursuit withdrawal. Yes. Yeah. Kind of cycle. Dr. Sue Johnson talks about dance steps related to that. And uh, and so they also talk about uh, perceived trust and perceived goal validation. See, that's important to note right because it's perceived trust it's not does the other person trust me it's do you perceive that that you're trusted by that other person you know i can feel like i'm i'm validating the things that my wife is doing but if she doesn't perceive that as validation it's not going to make a big difference uh, as far as she's concerned in the relationship that's right it is all about notice it yeah that's all It's, it's a perception and perception is reality here um, but the perceived trust is that uh, you you feel that the other person is available and dependable. And so if they are available and dependable, you perceive that it's kind of like a safe haven for you, especially in times of distress. Right. Right. And the other type of a security that you can get is through perceived goal validation, which is that the other person is kind supportive. of... supportive. Yeah, when you have a certain goal, they're kind of 
encouraging you, supporting mm-hmm. you, mm-hmm. saying you can do it and that kind of thing. And that also gives a certain sense of security. Right. And so they looked at these two ways of getting security and these two types of attachment styles. Because what they want to do is lower anxiety and they want to lower avoidance because once those two things are low, then you're in a more securely attached relationship and that's certainly what you're looking for. Exactly. And they want to know if one of these, like if it's trust versus the goal validation, does that help one of these types of people more than the other? Right. Like more the anxious person Mm -hmm. than the avoidant person? And that's what they wanted to look at in the research. Well, and what they found was, number one, perceived trust is important when you're anxious. And now they found that at the beginning because they, they yeah, did this that over was in the, the short term. term right? In the short term, yeah. In the short term. So they, now the idea, I think, is that um, the person that is sort of anxiously attached, it's like I say, is always mm-hmm. wondering if the other person loves or cares about them right. enough and that is, and is available to them. That person is more other focused. Well, they're on their guard, right? They're they're uh, their they're radar is very attuned. Yeah, okay. the radar is very attuned to rejection messages or to what they're hoping for is messages of acceptance. Right. So it's it's kind of in, they're invested in this other person for that security more than the than the avoidant person. Mm-hmm. But their anxiety can be lowered when they feel like they're they're trusted and cared about by the other person. Right. It's that trust. And so it, it really comes through that, that the, that they're sort of focused on this other person. They're getting a feeling of trust mm-hmm. there that they can depend on them. Mm-hmm. And that lowers their anxiety and makes them feel more secure. And in the short term, uh, when the other person is seen as being someone who validates the things that you care about, who validates your goals, that's a, a good thing for lowering avoidance. Right. So the people that are more avoidant in style and relationships, the ones that are tending to check out or tending to run from from the relationship when mm-hmm. things get a little heated, those people are more focused on their own goals. Mm-hmm. And so therefore the validation that comes from the other person towards those goals really helps them feel secure. Right. Right. It, it's like... Uh, because then you're focused on what you're doing and what you want to do as opposed to that intimacy, that right. close connection, right? Because because your goals, if you're avoidant, are going to be, oh, you know, I, I want to run a 10K. I'm going to train to run a 10K, and that's getting you out of the house. But if your spouse is saying, oh, what a great idea, you're doing such a good job, uh, at least in the short term, that's something that lowers that avoidance and brings you closer together. Brings you closer together. And the interesting thing that they found with this is that over the course of the two years, the opposite relationship started it to be started true. started to change, yeah. You know, so that now the avoidant person that was running out a lot, mm-hmm. because the partner was going, sure, go ahead, run that 10K, and you're going to do great, and I'm so proud of you, and everything like that. Right. Because they got that fulfilled, and they started to feel more secure, mm-hmm. then they started to be able to benefit more from the trust part of right. the messages coming from that partner right. and not just from the goal validation part. Well, that that trust is pretty vulnerable, right? Thinking about whether or not you can trust the other person, whether or not they trust you, that puts you in a pretty vulnerable position. And if you're avoidant of those feelings that are a bit troublesome and you're trying to get out as often as you can or back away from that intimacy, you're not going to notice the, the, those trusting messages and you're not going to be able to attend to them. You're going to, you're, you'll even avoid the perception 
of trust because you don't want to think about, does that person trust me and can I trust them? Right. And, and because it seems this avenue of having, it's, it's like the, the tendency would be in this situation for the spouse that's feeling uh, anxiously attached, like, please show me you care, please be there for me, all right. this. When the other person is out jogging, right, the tendency is going to be to be upset with them. Mm-hmm. Here you go again, leaving. Yeah. Right? Oh, you have to do your big marathon. <laughs> right? So that's the tendency because there's a lot of frustration on the person that wants to be close to have their partner moving away. Mm-hmm. And in this case, in a literal way, like they're running. Yeah. <laughs> the example we're choosing. <laughs> right? right? But, but I guess what this research is saying is that if the partner that's having these anxious feelings about, about the, the other one that's running, yeah. right? Literally in our case, uh-huh. uh, our example, uh, if they put, they, they, they recognize their, their anxiety there and they support the goal of the person that's literally running, um, that will fill the void. That's why they're calling it fill the void. Fill yeah. that void for them mm-hmm. and allow them to feel secure that you're supporting them and then come back and be able to engage in a more trusting type of uh, exchange, mm-hmm. which again would help. So, so messages that you trust the other person and validating that other person's goals are two things that over the long term are going to improve your connection with your partner and lead to that more secure relationship. That's right. And, and so the, the, the opposite was also true in that the, the, the partner that feels more anxious and needs more of that trusting uh, type of exchange uh, over time, once they have that filled, that void filled, mm-hmm. right, then they're able to move on and and appreciate the security that comes with having their own goals supported. By well, they can have their partner. goals. They can have goals other than making sure everything's okay with their relationship. So that's it. They can have them <laughs> and they get security right. from, from the response yeah. they get from their partner. They so, don't have to be so preoccupied. That anxious attachment, you know, is is that preoccupation. And once they don't have to be so preoccupied, you can begin to have some goals that your partner can actually validate for you. That's right. Story number three, parents reap what they sow, child centrism and parental well-being. That's another story from the Social Psychology and Personality Science Journal. That's right. Again, in a, this is a March 2013, so it's old. Oh, very old. old. Study. It's cold off oh the presses. Oh, my God. It's like 100 years old now. Mm-hmm. Eh? Mm-hmm. Things move so fast in research. <laughs> <laughs> so so I guess uh, what, they're, what they're talking about here is... Uh, the controversy that you see a lot in the media about over-involved uh, whether, parenting, yeah, right? Over-involved parenting. Right. Uh, they're calling it child-centric parenting, but they're trying to make a distinction between that that they want to study, right? And these four other kinds of parenting that we hear about in the media. Although I only really have heard of two of these in the media. Okay, right? Mm-hmm. Um, helicopter, helicopter parents, yeah. parenting. That's one you hear right? about. You hear about that, that the parents who are trying to resolve their kids' problems and being overprotective and hovering over their kids all the time, basically mm-hmm. like a helicopter, That's right? That's why it's called that. And uh, and then you hear about tiger moms, I guess, right? Right, who are very concerned about their kids' achievement, even to the detriment of their relationship with their child. They're more concerned about how they're performing. 
right. like at school or in extracurricular activities, things like that. And then there were these other two, Little Emperor, which I thought was kind of an interesting name for the kids whose parents give them everything. All material things, yeah. Yeah, they, have, they want for nothing. They want for nothing. And then they talked about the concerted cultivation type of parenting. And that's where the parent is giving them all kinds of extracurricular stuff uh, to keep them occupied with that. But, but the whole goal of that, the tutoring, the coaching, is to give them a competitive advantage in life. Right. So that they're going to get into the right college and things like that. Exactly. It's not so much about having a good relationship with your that's your it. Kids. But so what, this child-centric so, parenting is more about the relationship that you have with them and not necessarily solving their problems for them, right? That's right. So that's what they're saying. It's not these other kinds of child-centric uh, types of parenting that you hear about in the news. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's what they're saying. And um, So it's about giving emotionally. It's about... And not giving material things. It's about it's about being there emotionally. It's about putting the child's needs over your own. Uh, and kind of if you have to make a choice between something you want to do and something your kids want to do. You you're, sacrifice. You're going to sacrifice your own needs for the child. For the child. That's right. So they, they did a couple of different studies. That's right. One and of them was? One of them, uh, they, I think they had 136 parents and they did a self-report questionnaire with these parents. And they wanted to find out if there was a correlation between mm-hmm. parents who are more self-sacrificing for their kids right? and and what kind of happiness levels they were reporting. Right. And not only what kind of happiness levels they were reporting, but also the meaning that they derive in their lives from spending time with their kids. That's right. Those were the two variables, the happiness and the meaning. And perhaps unsurprisingly, child-centric parents felt happier and felt their lives had more meaning when they were with their kids, doing things for their kids and with their kids. That's right. And so their whole idea behind this was that, you know, they're not old saying it's better to give than to receive. Right, right. You know, so the, the, it was this whole uh, pro-social investment hypothesis, yeah, they call it. Yeah, it's kind of a dichotomy, right? Because we think about parents who are sacrificing the, the things that they care about in order to meet the needs of their children and... Um, some researchers would say, well, you should be less happy in that circumstance. You shouldn't be more happy. You're giving up you're, you're giving up the things that you want to do for somebody else. Whereas on the other hand, you know, why do people feel happy when they make donations? Why do people feel happy when they, they give to charity or, or they, give, they volunteer? It, it's that pro-social thing that you're talking about. And maybe the same thing is acting between parents who are giving up things for their kids. Well, I guess, you know, what when you're giving to someone, like this is the idea, when you're giving to someone else at your own expense, mm-hmm. um, part of what's happening there is you're, you're letting that other person know how much you care about them, and in return, it's strengthening your relationship with that person. That's right. And so by strengthening, the, if, if you think that a lot of happiness comes from having good relationships in your life, mm-hmm. well, it totally makes sense. Absolutely. It makes perfect sense to me, for sure. I, I mean, if if we were talking about an adult relationship, it would be a bit of a different story, I think, if you're constantly giving of yourself and constantly sacrificing your own needs for the other person. It's meant to be a give and take in an adult relationship. But with kids, there's not that expectation. Like what you're getting in return is the satisfaction that your kids are happy and they're um, and they're developing the way that they're supposed to and they're going to be safe and successful. 
That's true. I think there, you're right about that. I think, though, that you're also going to be talking about, even with those different equations you just spelled out there, yeah. yep. you're also going to be talking about extremes of this thing. You know, so even right. though, yeah. you know, you're, I think it's, it's important to know that you are the provider and the child is the one that's, that's receiving, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's very important to, uh, to maintain. If you're giving so much of yourself and sacrificing so much that you are then resentful, and this, I don't think the study is picking up, no. that you're so resentful of things that that you've you've sacrificed that your life there was a dream that you had that was completely crushed by this mm-hmm. <laughs> for instance mm-hmm. you know uh, then you're not going to be very nice to your child well and you're that not resentment gonna, can come back on your child and make everything go upside down and now. you're probably not going to be able to pick that up in a small sample of 130 some odd people that's right. And right. like I said, I don't think the, uh, the 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 questionnaire wasn't looking at that kind of a thing either. Um, you know what I mean? It didn't look at... Do um, you resent your children? Right. <laughs> right. And how much? You know, like yeah. if you have a little bit of, of resentment or disappointment, I think that can be manageable. Right. right? It's when you've, you're, you've lost your entire self and mm-hmm. you're not thinking about yourself at all when it's an extreme in other words yeah, yeah. where i think it could be a problem um you know it's easier like you said to have that be a problem in adult relationships because mm-hmm. there should be more give and take there uh, but i still think with kids if it goes to an extreme it's trouble all right we'll so, agree to disagree because i sacrifice everything for my children everything and I, think, I think you're probably just not a very good parent <laughs> that's right if you're not doing the same thing that i'm doing <laughs> that's right except my kids are better adjusted anyway Wait, what study two <laughs> <laughs> they did do a second study of, as part of all of this they did and now they looked at 186 parents uh, 50 more than the first study 50 even 50 more i wonder where they gathered these 50 more parents anyways they asked them cuz i think what they thought is look you know, it's all well and fine. You know, you do a questionnaire. You say, do you give a lot to your kids? Well, wow. And you're, you're also saying you're really happy about that. <laughs> well, why wouldn't you be? Because the, the, the cognitive dissonance and the distress you would have would lead you right. to saying, well, no, I'm happy, you know. Yeah. So they wanted to substantiate this a little bit more rather than just through the questionnaire. So what they did is they asked parents to recall the previous day, episode by episode. Mm-hmm. And to talk about the different feelings they had and the activities and the and the meaning they, that they were having during these episodes. Right. So that it was more specific to the actual experience, not this general feeling of, you know, mm-hmm. I feel happy. And, and there's less of a, a what we what researchers call a social desirability factor maybe here, where you're not just answering a question, do you care about your kids, yes or no? You're more you're explaining situations that happen and how you felt in each of those situations. So so the people answering those questions might not quite feel so evaluated or judged based on those things. They're just talking about what happened yesterday. That's right. That's right. So, the, and so again, they, even with this other method of looking at it, that it was more specific and related to their experience from a previous day, uh, they found that child centric parents tend to have greater positive feelings, less negative feelings and greater meaning in life. And that was those three factors actually were their measure of well-being. So okay. greater well-being for these parents. So it's possible for parents who do make some sacrifices for their kids to still be happy people 
and feel that their life has meaning. I would hope so. Let's, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Can you imagine if it wasn't? Wow, it would be terrible. <laughs> it would be terrible. I wonder what the uh, little emperor parents would say. Ah, now that's the, the other interesting in thing here. So the other thing that they, they actually look to see how close to their, to this child-centric definition that they had as researchers for their own study, how close was it to these other four parenting styles? Um, and it turned out that there was a correlation between this child centrism that they were looking at and helicopter parenting right. and little emperor parenting and a little bit even with the tiger mom type of parenting, although not with the concerted cultivation type. Indeed. Yes. Well, when you look at the questions, some of them are fairly similar, right? The way that they evaluate it, you know, the helicopter moms, um, I say helicopter moms because usually when we're reading these articles, they're talking about moms. But the helicopter parent uh, questionnaire, one of the questions was, I feel responsible for my children's safety even when they're not under my care. You know, you'd, you would think that a person who sacrifices themselves for their kids would also feel some responsibility right. for their safety and things like that. Like you can see where there would be some relationships. And in some ways, the differences, the way that the researchers have defined them are semantic. I think a lot of the objection to this kind of uh, understanding, because people are going to lump this child-centered uh, parenting along with these other these other types of parenting, which according to the research itself, there is some overlap. Yeah. Now, the, the reason that any of these would would garner some negative attention uh, from people is I th- the, uh, the underlying reason, I think, is that people feel like, you know, you're not allowing your child to become an individual on their own. You're making them more dependent. And it's about mm-hmm. your own needs as a parent to... You know, have your needs fulfilled and make them sort of dependent on you. You know, that this is the underlying thing with it. I think some of these other definitions that, that I think there's some truth to that. Right. But the idea that you are the 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 person that gives and the child's one that receives mm-hmm. and that you have that higher And that you're willing there, to make that sacrifice. Yeah. That you're willing to do that. I think that that kind of security that comes from that, and we've talked about this before, mm-hmm. that is what then leads to your child feeling secure enough in their base with you that they move forward independently as an independent individual naturally. That's true. And it's That's not true. through pushing them into independence. It's through giving them that security that allows them to move forward in a, in a secure way. So when we look at those other four kinds of parenting, the helicopter parents, the little emperor parents, the tiger Tiger moms, they call it tiger moms for some reason. All the others say parents, but the tiger mom parents and the concerted cultivation parents, there's a lot of anxiety in those choices. The helicopter moms need to be there to solve the kids' problems, to make sure that the kids are safe. The uh, the little emperor parents have to give the kids everything and make sure all of those material needs are met. The tiger moms are making sure that their kids get, that they're achieving at a really high level so that they can get into the right school. The concerted cultivation parents, the same thing. They're concerned about their kids' future and anxious about what's going to happen. And that's where the influence comes in. The child-centric questions don't really address you know, what is the ultimate goal? Right. And and if the ultimate goal is the parent's goal right, for their the child to yeah. be successful, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily the child's goal. So this is where it's not child-centric, right? right? Um, so you get, like I say, you get this idea that uh, it's about the parent more than the child. And that's another problem. It certainly is. And I think that brings us to the end.
You can visit us at familyanatomy.com or email us at info at familyanatomy.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter and Google+. Plus. If you're listening on your iPhone, you can find us on the podcast app. And as usual, we'll leave you with a bit of a tune by Brother Love, and he's over at brotherloverocks.com. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. So get up and sing. It's a family thing hey! You know what to do Familyanatomy.com Family